We're one week away from Independence Day. Yes. Congratulations to us. Let's give ourselves a round of applause for that. Right? We are doing this thing. We, democracy. America. Thank you. Our found, th- I want to say thank you to our founding fathers for putting together such a, a great declaration of independence. But uh, most of us should know, if we took any kind of uh, schooling, that George Washington was our first president. But in fact, George Washington was not elected until six years after the treaty with Great Britain was signed. Uh, George Washington was also responsible for finding the location of where the White House would be built and who would build it. Now, we're coming up on celebrating 250 years of, well, close to 250 years of uh, independence from Great Britain. But after George Washington found the location where he wanted to build the White House and uh, found who he wanted to build uh, said White House, the British came back. And in 1814, set fire to the White House. Now, I don't know how they got away with it. My guess is they figured that Paul Revere wasn't around to let people know that, that they were coming. But they burned it to the ground, and it was rebuilt. And the White House was a place for our president to dwell. And as time has gone on, it has become a symbol of our history, a symbol of our democracy, And millions of people continue to visit it every year. And so when I think about our independence, how we're coming up on our Independence Day, I think about Moses leading the people out of Egypt. Moses going to Pharaoh and declaring independence. Moses going to Pharaoh and saying, let my people go. Now, I don't know if that's how Moses stated it, but that is how Charlton Heston stated it. And the people leaving Egypt with no government, no laws, no home. Sure, Moses was their leader, but there was no structure, there was no organization to what was going on. But it was God's desire to rule and to dwell with his people. So on Mount Sinai, God gave Moses the law in Exodus chapter 20. And in Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, God says to Moses, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. We've been going through this sermon series, The Story. And if you remember, it basically started the week after Easter Sunday, where Kevin preached about uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the the disciples, and how Jesus, um, while they didn't recognize that it was Jesus with them, how he went through the scriptures, how he went through this book, and showed them how it pointed to him. Even the tabernacle, even something as seemingly boring as this first part of Scripture is, this first part of Exodus 40 is, where it's just talking about building a building, even that building points to Jesus. 
And so in Exodus 40, verse 2, we're told, On the first day of the month, of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. The tabernacle was constructed a year after the Israelites had left Egypt. And this was kind of like a, a New Year's resolution from God to the people. On this first day of this first month of this new year, I am going to dwell with you. I am going to be your God in your midst. And so he gives Moses the construction, uh, the orders of construction for this tabernacle. And sure, there was a courtyard, but the main tabernacle was divided into two chambers. You had uh, the first chamber, the holy place, and dividing that from the next chamber was, was a large veil, and beyond that was the most holy place, the holy of holies, where God's presence would reside with the people. And so in Exodus chapter 40, we see a number of important things about the tabernacle. And the first thing that we see is that the tabernacle was a holy dwelling place. It was meant to impress the importance, the privilege that the people of Israel had in having God in their midst, in having the presence of God with them. They were the only nation that could claim that they had God's presence in their midst. And so notice in verses 9 through 15, the words anoint, consecrate, holy are used 11 times in those verses. And he says, Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar, so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand, and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall wash them with water, and put on Aaron the holy garments, and you shall anoint him and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also, and put coats on them, and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests, and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Anoint, consecrate, make holy. God is telling Moses that this building needs to be set apart, it needs to be holy, because a holy God in whom there is no sin, has set the standard of holiness. Right? And we set standards all the time, right? We have standards that we have to meet at our job. If we're an employer, we set standards for our employees. If you have kids, you set standards for your kids that they have to meet. If we played sports, we know that there are certain standards that we have to meet while playing sports. Or, or when we were in school, we had to meet certain standards to get the grade that we wanted. And so God's standard is holiness. God's standard to us is holiness. And he says in Leviticus 
chapter 20, verse 26, he says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. God has consecrated the people of Israel that they should be his possession. And what do they have to do? Be holy, for the Lord is holy. The second thing we see about the tabernacle is that it was designed for worship. It was a place for the priests to go and to serve and to offer sacrifices. In fact, it was the the day of atonement, the most holy day, where the high priest would offer sacrifices for the sins, for the transgressions of Israel. And it was that one day a year that he would be permitted to go into the Holy of Holies. It was a place where the people connected with God through the priests. They offered sacrifices. They made offerings. They said prayers. They had services. But it was also a place. It was a location, a central location, where, they, where the many people of the nation could go and come together as one people and worship God together as one. The third thing that we see about the tabernacle is that it required obedient dedication. Between verses 16 and 32, we're told eight times that Moses did as God commanded. Exodus 40, verse 16, this Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. And again in 19, as the Lord commanded. And again in 21 and 23 and 25 and 27 and 29 and 32. Again and again and again, the obedience of Moses is stressed and noted for us. Because the obedience of Moses was an example to the people of Israel, and it's an example to us that a most holy God desires obedience from his people. It's a pretty short story if if Moses decided uh, to put the tabernacle up how he desired. You know, we're not told that Moses goes in and thinks, oh, well, it would be more comfortable for my holy God if there was a couch in here, or or maybe God would would like a bed in here to to rest when when he's feeling tired. No, God was very specific on how he wanted his tabernacle constructed. And we're told in verse 33, so Moses finished the work. And when he finished the work, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 34 and 35, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's repeated twice. There's a lot of repetition in this chapter. We're being Uh, It's being emphasized to us that the glory of the Lord 
filled the temple because Moses did as God commanded, and he set apart this sanctuary for a holy God. So the glory of the Lord filled his dwelling. The glory of God resided with his people. But the tabernacle was meant to be portable. Remember, at this time, Israel had no home. They had a promised land, a land that, that God would guide them to. But it was a tent. It was meant to be uh, constructed where they were resting, where they would stay. And then when God left and, and they would follow, when the cloud left, uh, they would tear it down and, and follow him. And where he stopped, that's where they would stay. And so Israel was on this really long backpacking trip for an extra 40 years because even though the glory of God was with them, they still disobeyed. They still lacked faith. Isn't that interesting? That even this visible cloud of the glory of God that was with the people of God, and they still lacked faith. After all that God had done for them, they still were disobedient. But in Exodus 40, 36 through 38, he says, Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So during the day, the presence of the Lord was a cloud. At night, it was fire so they could see it. And as it departed, they would follow. And if it didn't depart, they just stayed there for a while. It was a place for God to dwell, a holy place for God to dwell as he led them to the promised land where eventually we read in Scripture that the tabernacle is replaced by the temple of God. But here's the thing. If you go to Israel today, there's no tabernacle. There's no temple. And while Moses finished the work in Exodus chapter 40, he didn't complete the work. That was done in Jesus Christ. After Jesus, there's no need for a temple or a tabernacle made with wood and stone because Jesus is the manifestation of the tabernacle for us to worship and to walk in his glory. John chapter 1 writes that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He's speaking of, of Jesus here. And in verse 14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's that, that word dwelt again. Jesus resided with his people. God resided with his people. And we have seen his glory. The cloud of the glory of God is now visible in Jesus Christ, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What John is saying to us is that Jesus came and tabernacled 
among us. He was the living, breathing manifestation of the tabernacle. He dwelt among his people and his glory was visible to his people. In John chapter 2, Jesus is speaking and he says uh, in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And John clarifies in verse 21, he says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is saying, I am the tabernacle. I am the temple. Another thing that we see about Jesus fulfilling this tabernacle is that Jesus was able to enter the tabernacle as the true high priest. See, in Exodus 40, verses 12 through 15, we're told of how Moses had to consecrate, had to anoint Aaron and his sons for service as priests. And it was Aaron that would serve as that high priest. Aaron was the one once a year that would offer that day of atonement sacrifice, and he would go into the Holy of Holies after offering that sacrifice. But in your Bibles, you might write next to Exodus chapter 40, Hebrews chapter 9. Because in Hebrews chapter 9, we get the interpretation of Exodus 40 in light of the risen Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. That earthly place of holiness, as we know, is the tabernacle. Moving on into verses 6 and 7. These preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. You see, the high priest had to offer sacrifice once a year for the transgressions of the people. Because Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so the high priest continually had to offer these sacrifices for the people. Because ultimately, the blood of goats and calves could not cover the sins of the people. In verse 11 and 12, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but of the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption." See, a holy God requires holiness from an unholy people. That's why the priests continually offered sacrifices. But as we've seen, Jesus came and tabernacled with us. He dwelt with us. His glory was seen by his disciples by the people he healed. 
it was evident to all, or should have been evident to all. And he knew his purpose. He knew that his temple, his body, would be destroyed on the cross. And in three days, he would raise again. So that when God the Father looks on those who believe, looks on those who worship, looks on those who obey Christ, he sees not our righteousness, not our holiness, but he sees the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus. We're an unholy people. We're not worthy of the love of Christ. And yet from the beginning of this book, it all points to the fact that God loves us, that God desires to dwell with us, And that for that to happen, he would send his son to die for us that we could have presence with God. See, Jesus is telling his disciples shortly before he goes to the cross, he tells them that it's actually a good thing that I'm going. It's important that I go. Because when I go... I will send the Holy Spirit. I will send a helper to you. And the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says in verses 19 and 20, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I was in Israel a number of years ago, had the opportunity to go. And in Israel, there's no more temple. There's no tabernacle. They have, uh, they have a wall that they go to as a monument to what uh, used to be there, a monument to former glory, you could say. But they have tunnels underneath the Temple Mount. And I remember one night we... We went through the tunnels, and at one spot in there, you are as close as you will ever be to the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God resided with his people. And it's this awe-inspiring moment as you get there, and you realize how close you were to where God dwelt. And I got to thinking as I was preparing this message, I I got to thinking, why don't I feel the same way I felt in that moment about the fact that God's Spirit dwells inside me? We should be in awe of that. We should wake up each morning and be in awe of the fact that Christ resides in us within us through his spirit. 
See, I think the problem is that we've exchanged the comforter for the comfort of compromise. We've exchanged the glory of God within us for the comfort of compromise. We've exchanged the Holy Spirit for the comfort of compromise. Unlike Moses, who was careful to do just as the Lord commanded, we think God will just have to accept me for who I am. I'm sure we've all heard that. Well, God will have to accept me for who I am. I can't change. I shouldn't change. I don't have to change. And a couple weeks ago, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. Him and I were kind of in the same situation in life, kind of in our mid-30s, single, uh, dating. I don't know why he's asking me for dating advice, but (laughs) um, he did. And he was telling me that he's going on these dates with, with Christian girls, and it's just assumed that sex will be a part of their relationship. And, and this guy, this friend of mine, he's grown up in the church. He knows the Christian answer. He, he said, Zach, I know what the Christian answer is. But I'm just not sure I care anymore. I'm just not sure I care anymore. I think we can come to God with that kind of attitude at times. That we know, the, we know the Christian answer is that God forgives and that God has grace and that Jesus died for my sins. So what's one more sin? I'm just not sure that I care anymore. It's more comfortable. It'll be easier for me to get what I want if I compromise. But maybe that's not our struggle. Maybe, maybe our struggle is that we struggle with anger that we fly off the handle at the the slightest of things. Maybe we struggle with abuse of substances, of people close to us. Maybe we lie, we cheat, we steal, and we just expect God to be okay with that. I work at at FedEx, and... uh, so obviously we have to do a lot of deliveries to businesses, restaurants in particular. And we all like to go out and we all like to go eat somewhere. And we try to pick clean places. But I bet if we walked into some of those kitchens that we wouldn't eat there anymore. We'd say this is not good for our presence. Our presence should not be here. And some of us on the outside, we look great. We look like good Christian people. But on the inside, we're these people with a dirty kitchen. And we just expect God will be okay with that. We'll expect that God enjoys living there. We can't exchange the Holy Spirit for the comfort of compromise. We can't 
afford to do that. We can't forget that God commanded us to be holy because he is holy. And perfection may not be possible in this life, but progress should be perpetual. We should continue to grow. We should continue to follow God. We should allow the awe of being the temple of the Holy Spirit to bring us to a place of worship and obedience. Just as the cloud resided with the people of Israel to guide them through their wanderings to the promised land, so the Spirit resides within us to guide us into worship to guide us to obedience. And we don't worship, we don't obey God out of some obligation. But it's because the Spirit leads us into worship and obedience. I have some students in my youth ministry that are just learning to drive. Most of us in here still drive. Maybe a couple of us shouldn't be, but that's not my decision to make. <laughs> but it's important that we're on, when we're on the road that we maintain the lane that we're in. And we all get frustrated by that person that's kind of getting real close to us, and then they're over to the other side. And how do we maintain our lane? Well, we focus something ahead. We relax our grip on the steering wheel. And sometimes when we screw up, our, our grip tends to get tighter. Our, our focus comes down to what's just in front of us. And we're, we're swerving around. And we think, I need to try harder. I need to do better. But really what we need to do is to pick our eyes up. And we worship, we obey, because it's the Spirit that keeps our focus on the cross ahead. This isn't a, a, a what message. I don't have 10 steps to guarantee some kind of spiritual progress. This is a why message. A couple of months ago, I ran a half marathon. Not because I love running. In fact, I, I hate running, you know. But I did it to accomplish a goal. And our goal is this. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. The glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. See, the Spirit keeps our focus on the cross ahead. And beyond the cross, 
is that heavenly reality. The fact that when we reach the end of these wanderings, when we reach the end of our journeys, when we reach where the Spirit is guiding us, the Spirit is guiding us to an eternal redemption, to eternity in heaven with Christ, with God. And maybe that means that, that today we need to take some time to confess. Confess our compromises to God, whatever they may be, wherever it is that we have laxed the standard. And consecrate ourselves to him. Set ourselves apart. For others, maybe we've just simply lost that reverence, that awe that we are the temple of God. We lack profound worship. We go through each day on our own power. Most days without any talk of, of God or contemplation on where he may be leading us. We need to get back to that feeling of awe. But for all of us, I hope that this is a message of encouragement. It should encourage us that a holy God wants to dwell with us and fill us with his glory. Not only that, but, but we take his glory with us. Wherever we go, whatever we face, the glory of God goes with us and before us. back to the last couple of years that we've had, the, the COVID years, the COVID dispensation. And I think for many of us, the spirit within us groaned to come back together as one body to worship God. Because this building, this sanctuary, it's not the temple, it's not the tabernacle. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit groaned within us to come together because God desires for us to come as one church, as one people. The many become one. The many bring the glory of God into this building to worship Him. So let's walk in light of that encouragement. Let's worship in light of that. Let's pray.